Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Scott Tong. Scott Tong is a sustainability correspondent for Marketplace, where his coverage focuses on energy, the environment, natural resources, and the global economy. He previously served as Marketplace's Shanghai Bureau Chief and as a reporter for PBS NewsHour. Please join me in giving a very, very warm welcome to Mr. Scott Tong. Well, thank you all for coming out tonight. It's uh, great to see all of you in the radio world. Uh, I'm usually talking to a microphone in a booth without any people in it. <laughs> so it's great to have this live audience and a lot of people who are uh, very interested in this topic tonight. So I'm, what we're going to do is I'm going to introduce the smart people who are next to me and we're going to have a conversation for about 45 minutes. We have plenty of time for your questions uh, and my role is just to move along and to be the jargon police a little bit and, uh, <laughs> and bring their great ideas to the rest of you. So let me uh, introduce uh, Annabelle Ford, um, is an archaeologist, so we have experts from three different disciplines tonight. Annabelle Ford is an archaeologist, she's associated with the University of California at Santa Barbara. She is best known for her rediscovery of the ancient Maya city of El Pilar, and she serves as the director of the Mesoamerican Research Center at UC Santa Barbara. She's also the president of the nonprofit organization Exploring Solutions Past, the Maya Forest Alliance. So please welcome Annabelle. On her right, Joe Manning is a, is a historian of Ptolemaic Egypt at Yale University. His current research focuses on how pre-modern human societies impacted the environment and how the environment and climate change shaped those societies across the Mediterranean. Uh, Joe Manning. And next to me, Melissa Lane is a political scientist at Princeton University. She studied philosophy. She directs the Princeton University Center for Human Values. And her, one of her recent books is Eco-Republic, What the Ancients Can Teach Us About Ethics, Virtue, and Sustainable, li sustainable Living. Uh, and you have an entourage with you tonight. So all of you, please welcome Melissa Lane. <laughs> So I'm just going to talk briefly about uh, where we are today because uh, we, we know we have a sustainability challenge, right? Our, our ecological dashboard is blinking in all these different ways. It's articulated in terms of carrying capacity, uh, warming, record-breaking temperatures, ice caps, species extinctions. Some describe this period as having no historical analog as far as the human footprint the Anthropocene period. Um, we will be referring to all of that as we, as we talk today, so I'm not going to uh, spend much time talking about the, the challenge we have today, the sustainability problem, because uh, taking a long view helps us to kind of look for uh, the right questions that we should be asking, what can we learn from the ancients, and what are some of the answers that might, they might be providing for us. So I want to start by, by asking kind of the initial question is, what can we learn about sustainability and, and uh, collective societies from ancient civilizations? I want to start, Annabelle, with you. You have studied, you have spent your career studying the, uh, the Maya and, and uh, uh, the forest uh, structure that has specific lessons for today. Well, the Maya, who are uh, uh, ancient and contemporary group, they didn't disappear. Uh, in uh, Mexico, Guatemala, and Belize, uh, developed a system really out of a climate chaos period 
which I call the MILPA cycle. And it's a, a cycle that builds perennials but supplies annuals mm -hmm. around a cycle of maybe 20 years. And uh, it inhibits erosion, creates biodiversity, uh, uh, develops fertility, uh, feeds people. Uh, it does everything that you want it to do. And it, it's built on skill and labor and knowledge. So as far as using the land then, are you, uh, over the course of this 20-year cycle, do you use this you know, portion of the, of, the, of the land first, and then you kind of move on somewhere else to let, uh, to let this land be used for other purposes, and, and this is a sustainable cycle? Well, what, what it really is is, a, is each little place, like you, it's looked upon in the, what I would call the European view as, uh, uh, as shifting agriculture, but they're only looking at the annual cycle. You're not mm -hmm. looking at all the perennial things you need, uh, construction material, uh, uh, production things for mm -hmm. your home, uh, medicine, fruits, things that really are long-term investments. So the whole cycle is really building that long-term investment along 20%, uh, which might be in the annual cycle, and the rest, which is a lot, 80%, in the perennial components. So tell us what uh, period of time we're talking about, and how does it relate to now? So the time period I'm mainly looking at is around uh, 600 to 900 AD, or around uh, the last part of the mm -hmm. first millennium of our era. But there are people who were doing that at the time of contact with the Spanish and are practicing all the way up to today. Um, of course, today we, we always want technology and we're not looking at things that are minimal technology and lots of knowledge. And this is what we really need to look at more. And was there a, <coughs> kind of a, a collective notion of the greater good uh, that was yeah. that was assumed yeah. in this structure. Yeah, in, fe in fact, that's true. Uh, they are uh, they're always looking at what the greater environment will do, how it will, how you'll still be keeping fertility and inhibiting erosion and lowering temperature and building uh, more uh, value to that landscape, not just for today, not just for the year, but on you know cycles. I would say generational, minimally, if not longer. Great. Uh, let me turn to to Joe and kind of run the same questions by him, what example uh, comes to mind for you as far as a, a lesson from the ancients and how they applied it today? I would say the main thing is it's important to keep in mind that even uh, very high civilizations, so-called like Egypt in the later periods, in the classical periods like under the Ptolemies and the Romans, that the vast bulk of the people living in that society uh, were farmers. Uh, they were farmers uh, that were involved in animal husbandry and so on, so living very close to the land understanding the annual rhythms, the daily rhythms of life, um, and the natural forces that created um, such things. So that's important to keep in mind that um, they were living um, within nature um, and were increasingly, I think, at least trying to live outside of nature, which is probably a mistake. And so was there something about this nature of living, living that close to nature that made them more uh, kind of connected to when they might be or kind of exceeding the resources available to them? Yeah, I think so. Egypt is a really interesting place because of this crazy Nile River. Um, we tend to forget about it. It's not just in Egypt. Uh, the sources for water in Egypt, of course, are in the Ethiopian highlands primarily, very far, in fact, from, from Egypt. So it's something that they did not fully understand, the sources of it and how the natural system worked, but they were very aware because their entire life depended on a single water input from very far away, 
that uh, in a variable uh, system. So sometimes mm -hmm. a lot of water, sometimes no water flooding, and so on. They were very aware year by year that things could change uh, quite dramatically. So they were very sensitive to um, that kind of natural rhythm. They had to be. And so, you know, look, looking back from today, we think so much about uh, individual incentives and, and what can I, you know, what can I get for myself or for my family? Mm. Was there something about the nature of the society then where there was a balance between this, these individual incentives and the collective incentive? Very much so. Very much developed uh, in Egypt because of the, the irrigation system, the way you put water on land. It's a very simple idea, but... Um, not so simple. It was all cooperation. Be uh, it wasn't individual fa farmers farming for themselves. It was groups, usually villages or even larger political units, cooperating to let water on these um, large um, fields, to drain the fields, uh, to take care of the irrigation ditches and so on. Very much a group effort. That's how farming worked uh, mm. in Egypt until uh, 1970 AD. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Melissa, you, you have thought and written a lot about collective effort uh, and what Plato has to, has to say about the relationship between governance, uh, cities, and the, and the individuals who inhabit them and this kind of relationship. So, so from, a, you know, from the sustainability perspective of kind of living within collective means, what does Plato have to tell us? Yeah, so Plato's writing in the fourth century before the Common Era, and I think in a sense what we see in Greek writing at that time is that people are becoming aware of how fragile these uh, achievements of a stable collective good can be. So in a sense that there had been these societies that had succeeded in living within these limits, but there were forces that always would threaten those and especially threaten them with the growth of bigger cities, which was happening in Athens, you know, mm. more trade, more mining. Those aren't unique, but you, those forces together could lead people to be tempted, really, through greed, through political ambitions, well, through power, Well, you get more scale, war. right? Through shipping right. and more resources and minerals, you just kind of get more production at more scale, and that, that's the, the temptation? Yeah, exactly. And so I think what, what Plato started to say was, well, wait, we have to go back to the basics of what is a society for? What makes a good and flourishing society? And to ask the question, you know, all of this economic activity, and which, is, which might be driving us beyond natural social limits, beyond natural limits, is that compatible with achieving the, the, the fundamental values that, you know, that, that we care about? So what I take from that is that sustainability has an idea of stability mm -hmm. in its core, and which I think Annabelle and Joe were also talking about. And it also has an idea of the good at its core. We don't want to sustain something that's bad. We want to sustain a good and flourishing and um, uh, productive uh, and healthy social order. And I think that's what Plato's reflections were really trying mm. to, to, to remind people to, to do. And more generally, I want to ask all of you how, I guess, important is that this, this broader philosophical kind of moral framing of this? If you ask... An economist, right, he or she might just say, well, you just, if you price things the right way uh, and, and you have public policy and pricing, you don't have to, you don't have to get into that, right, how, how people think about the good society. But I want to ask you that, how important or not is it that, uh, that you have this collective society of people kind of buying into what a good society is? How important is that or not? Go ahead. Joe. I was going to say, I think it's fundamentally important at a time let's say after 500 BC in the Mediterranean world, certainly when we have 
the beginnings of markets and the beginnings of market exchange. And there was a lot of reaction, actually a lot of suspicion against that, that markets were actually not a particularly good thing because it could destroy um, trust uh, between people uh, or in villages or towns or whatever. Um, so there was a lot of suspicion about markets and, and coinage being used. It, cer it certainly comes in mm. um, and it becomes dominant uh, certainly by the Roman uh, Empire, it's dominant in the Mediterranean. But as we see the transition, there was a lot of suspicion about um, the use of uh, such things like coinage or even markets to, to buy and sell um, things, uh, probably for, in some ways for good reasons because of this potential to destabilize social relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think that, um, you know, if we say an economist can just solve these problems for us, so economists are going to weigh up costs and benefits. But the philosopher would ask, well, what is a cost? What counts as a benefit? And actually, if we go from the status quo assumption, kind of unthinking assumptions that we make about that, we might rule out whole categories of social benefit because they don't fit into the certain kinds of ways that we're thinking ah. about that kind of pricing. Mm -hmm. so, so I think yeah. we can't avoid that deeper philosophical reflection. You know, Maynard, John Maynard Keynes famously said that um, all um, people, sort of practical people who think that they're savvy in the ways of the business world are really slaves to some defunct philosopher or mm. economist, you know, <laughs> who sort of form those categories of ideas that we now take for granted. Okay, okay. Mm. Annabelle, thoughts? Yeah. yeah, the Maya, actually, the Mayan language is uh, one of the commons, and it's a very interesting, I mean, these evolutionary psychologists have been analyzing languages, and they look at the way the Maya language is expressed, and it expresses interests in everybody. In fact, uh, a Maya uh, uh, forest gardener may be walking along and seeing a tree that doesn't belong to him, but sees that it has a, a pest of some kind, and he will try to fix it. Or she might try to uh, make you well, or something like that. So there's a, actually a fundamental quality of the language that is of the commons, which is very mm -hmm. different from our language. Well, uh, let me kind of ask it another way then, kind of to take it to today. When you think about these different societies that you've all you spent your careers writing about and studying uh, and how they think about uh, the commons, what is missing uh, today, you think, from the conversation today? Uh, Joe. Wow, that, that's a <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything, you know? That's right. <laughs> I hope everyone brought tents because we're going to be here for a <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 uh, It's not completely missing, and I think uh, most of us know better, uh, but it's still, I think it's often uh, absent these days, and that's this sense of community, uh, the, the, way, the way we live, uh, the way our ancient societies lived um, in balance with nature uh, because they had to. Um, but also ethically, morally, uh, in our, I think, in our civilizations that we study, it, it was felt that there, there was a, uh, a balance and an order in the universe, and if things like the natural world or, or poor behavior uh, was affecting that, that that's really a bad thing. Um, so things were, things were much more, uh, I guess, group-oriented, um, not in the socialist way, let's say, but uh, mm -hmm. just the way societies were, were organized um, within the natural world. Um, aware of vulnerabilities, aware of risks, um, but also aware of moral relationships um, to each other. Um, yeah, I, think I think much that, more than... Yeah. The, we Min tend to forget this, I think. We, we mm -hmm. are aware, but we tend to forget. Yeah. Maybe. So minimizing risk, I think, is a sort of a fundamental <coughs> quality mm -hmm. where yeah. we're mm -hmm. trying to maximize gain. 
uh, in the yeah. world you were describing. Yeah. I think that's that the average everyday person would want to minimize risk for themselves and that, and therefore their environment. Mm -hmm. yeah. As a starting point, the minimizing risk as opposed right. to to growth or you know these right. these gain, these gain, gain that yeah. we might yeah. have today. Yeah. Because the uh, this like you were talking about the Nile, it floods or it doesn't. Uh, rainfall agriculture like the Maya would be uh, living on, they, they really have to be connected to that. And in fact, you know, I, I can I remember someone asking, uh, I says, well, how come you're planting corn? You said you lost all your corn. You call this your corn. Well, he got it from a friend. And it was his corn. He called it his corn. So obviously there was a communal thought about how you plant corn. Mm. I mean, I don't really know it, but I could hear it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, the other sort of positive and negative way to put what we, what we might be missing is that on the one hand, we miss the fact that we think, oh, the individual can do whatever they are legally permitted to do mm -hmm. and kind of push those limits to the, you know, to, to the furthest possible degree. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think the ancients would have been much more aware, well, actually what individuals do is going to have an impact on mm -hmm. the social good. And they saw that relationship much more directly for the kinds of reasons, mm -hmm. material reasons. That, that Joe and Annabelle have been talking about. But then the flip side of that is, I think there also could be a deeper understanding that you know, true satisfaction and fulfillment would come from fulfillment in a way which is congruent with the social good. You know, so if there's a positive side of it as well. Mm -hmm. And I think for today, that means you know, not thinking about ecological sustainability only as things we have to give up yeah. you know, and, and kind of changes that we're gonna be forced to make, but actually thinking, you know, how could this lead to a better, healthier society, a society that we actually really want to, to build? And seeing that as a kind of positive aim, I think is something that the ancients would suggest. Now, earlier on, before we came out here, we, we talked about, you know, something that underpins so much of our, uh, of our concept of life today, and that is growth, right? As a, as a business reporter, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, GDPs have to grow, right? Companies mm -hmm. that are listed on the stock exchange mm -hmm. have to grow. Mm -hmm. Trade has to grow. It's this, uh, it, we don't even think about it. We don't even challenge it, that this yeah. notion that economic growth has to keep growing. Uh, and and uh, did did these ancient societies um, have the same conception of growth that we do today? Yeah, Melissa. So, so Plato actually, I think, has a wonderful image, a couple of wonderful images for for the problems of an of an ideal of untrammeled growth. So he has an ideal of you know is is the good life actually just going to be sort of drinking and eating as much as you can and just having that pass through your system. Like, how is that kind of a good life? You just are sort of a sieve where this intake is just passing yeah. right through you. And then the other image that he has is really health. And when you think about untrammeled growth in relation to bodily health, you think about, you know, tumors. And, you know, the kind of, uh, there's un there are forms of untrammeled growth mm. that are clearly damaging and bad. And I think both of those are meant to be sort of common sense ways that he's trying to get his readers to think, well, wait a minute, actually, you know, healthy systems have internal limits and internal homeostasis mm. and a kind of balance. And when you have untrammeled growth in, in you know, it, 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 certainly in certain key contexts to do with human life, yeah. that's actually potentially really damaging. Hmm. Um, Joe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think what you're asking, Scott, is uh, a sort of economic or financial engineering question uh, around growth, real growth, positive growth, growth above population growth, which uh, is called modern growth, um, we, which we all think is a really good thing and an important thing. 
um, helps our investment funds and so on. Um, but the ancient world had no conception of that kind of growth. Um, mm. No king, no ruler, no leader of a city-state thought we need to grow at 3% a year above population um, growth because that's going to be good, or 5%. Everyone understands um, that reference or, here. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, that, um, uh, you know, nor was the idea of, of a ruler, uh, how do I make everyone's life better in the society, uh, really? I think, that's, I think that comes later. Uh, it's a later thing, so there's good and bad about that. But there was no conception that we need to grow this economy. The ancients, of course, saw growth. They saw mm -hmm. cities growing. They saw populations contracting under conditions of plague, for example, pretty dramatically. Lots of cases of that. So they could see populations growing and shrinking. But they were not thinking in terms of, in terms of economy, how do we engineer 5% growth in a sustainable way mm. or what that means for for sustainability issues that we're yeah. concerned about. Yeah, yeah well, uh, of course, the Maya are famous for this collapse, and that may be one of these things where growth was in one sector, and this would be the political economic, the political sector that wanted to have the aggrandize their lifestyle. But in the meantime, people continued to live on the land, and when they couldn't afford to uh, maintain that infrastructure, something like we could think of uh, Detroit, or maybe the 405, wasn't someone saying something about that? <laughs> uh, that you have, you have to invest, you, if you have to look at your investments or you, of, of uh, infrastructure that is supporting the society in a, uh, a, modern, um, a modicum of moderation, I would say. Mm -hmm. And when you do, it does get out of whack, mm. those things won't be supported. Mm. So let me turn the question then um, uh, about the ancient societies and ask you, did they have certain blind spots to these questions of sustainability, kind of ecological uh, damage that, you know, uh, kind of resonate today that are, that are lessons in what not to do for us today? Annabelle, start with you. Well, perhaps going on that same point, we have to really look at uh, developing an infrastructure that you can afford, and when you can't, you, you, you have to be reasonable of mm -hmm. how, you, uh, how you acquire in this, we might call it taxation, for the Maya it would have been labor, and if there just isn't the labor to support the infrastructure, you need to be uh, balancing it. Perhaps Plato had something to say about that, I think. <laughs> it's one of the things I would uh, look to. Because I think that's something we have to be careful about. Mm. Joe, I'll go to you on this question. Mm. Blind spots? Blind spots, yeah. I would say um, go look at the, the Ptolemaic exhibit at, at the Getty um, down the road. I'm not getting paid to mention that. It's a fantastic <laughs> exhibit. Um, very powerful kingdom based in Egypt set up uh, by the descendants of Alexander the Great. Very rich, powerful uh, Alexandria. The library with all these scientists and so on. Um, one of the mistakes we now know they made, uh, and they had no idea they were doing it, is putting a lot of free threshing wheat, bread wheat, into the fertile soil of Egypt. It becomes the grain, the bread basket of Rome later. The Ptolemies were rich grain merchants. Um, that's the reputation. The problem is with this new kind of wheat, it's very drought sensitive. And we can now see uh, in a, a whole series of massive Nile failures for two or three years in a row sometimes with no flood, that that caused enormous uh, problems for for the dynasty. It doesn't go away, but it yeah. causes tremendous stress and a lot of stress locally on farmers, too. They had no idea that because the Greeks who were living in Alexandria and in the Mediterranean preferred this kind of wheat for their bread, that that was going to be problematic for the, the traditional farming system of Egypt, for example. But now we can see that that was probably uh, a problematic thing. Mm. Hmm. 
and I, my example wouldn't be uh, strictly ecological, but I think if we look at Athens during the Peloponnesian War, you know, Thucydides shows that they become infatuated with their with a kind of arrogance about their own capacities. You mm -hmm. know? So they believe that they launch this massive invasion of Sicily and sort of pin all their fortunes on this, even though you know there's been very good arguments made in the Athenian assembly about why this is a really bad idea. Mm. And then they put people in charge of it who are sort of manifestly incapable to be in charge of it. And of course, the whole thing ends in disaster um, and really a catastrophe yeah. for the whole city-state. Yeah. City and they kind of struggle on through a few more years of the war and then are completely defeated mm. by, by Sparta. And, and that, mm. I think, you know, it's the Thucydides writes his whole work, his whole history um, of this fifth century war in order to say, you know, what does it take for a, a, a political entity to exercise good judgment and how difficult the conditions are when people become arrogant or blinded to their own real situation and real capacities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I guess, uh, you know, we, we, we don't want to needlessly um, kind of idealize the, the important lessons of these ancient societies. And so I want to ask you, is there something about the nature of some of these pre-modern societies uh, where there were more kind of built-in limits to how quickly they could grow, to how many people they had, uh, the, the, the not kind of outlasting the natural resources they had before them? Were there something fundamentally different than today that we need to keep in mind? Uh, Melissa. Well, I think that in a sense they were they were much more often hitting up against those limits, you know. So I don't think it is that they were necessarily, you know, in every case or everyone was wiser and had mm -hmm. more foresight. I mean, Plato yeah. wanted that to be the case, yeah. and you know, he's trying to encourage people to make that the case. But that's because it wasn't generally always the case. But because if you hit up against those limits that would be pretty immediately disastrous for you. And so you sort of learn by experience, you know, not to hit up against them in the same way. And I think what's happened in the last kind of 150 years, you know, especially with the burning of fossil fuels, is that there's been, we've, we've started to burn fossil fuels, there actually is a limit, but we, we weren't aware immediately of the effects of hitting up against it. We've sort of been insulated until very recently from feeling the worst effects. Now, you know, many places are starting to feel them. So in a sense, we're in the same situation as them. There are real limits. It's just that we thought we had more headroom. We didn't want to believe there was a limit, you know, whereas they, through sort of sad experience, you mm. know, were kind of um, forced on the whole to, 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 you know, to recognize those limits and therefore to mm -hmm. try to stay within them for the most part. <clears throat> Joe? I think in the pre-modern world generally, of course, we're at technological limits. So these are all organic economies, so it's human and animal labor. Um, so there are natural limits. The reason we, I guess we know that is the last couple centuries BC, first century AD maybe, um, Egypt reaches a population peak, about 5 million. It doesn't reach that size again until the middle of the 19th century. Hmm. Um, so that, we're, no, we're at kind of a, a limit of what was possible to do just in terms of agricultural production, supplying um, cities, um, and so on. So there's kind of a natural um, limit that was reached for technological reasons. What's the population of Egypt today? It's now over 90 million in the same, the same territory. Um, that's a little bit... Uh, that's a wake-up call, I think, for yeah, a yeah. place like Egypt. Uh, so, so part of it is simply just the population difference between, yeah. between then and, yes. and today. I mean, yes. setting aside pre-windmill, pre-machinery societies, just the, the population differences yes. as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Annabelle? 
Yeah, well, I think that um, these ancient societies had to work within nature, had to know nature, had to understand nature, had to be in touch with nature, had to appreciate the kinds of um, aspects. It was, and, and I think like you were saying, uh, Melissa, that they, the, the feedback was quite fast. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're in a position now, like you say, that we aren't getting fast feedback. Mm -hmm. It's a leg, and even the leg is a leg, because now if, even if we could decide to do something different, uh, the, the trajectory is in one way, mm -hmm. where that would not have been able to be happening in, in prehistory especially. But there still was the, the ability for the elite and the managers to do things. So I think that those are some of the areas we can be more attentive to. So I want to ask you about a, a new topic of, uh, of uncertainty uh, in, in the current context. Science has inherently has some uncertainty to it, and certainly with the different dimensions of the climate science conversation and what the effects may be. There's uncertainty in different areas and different degrees of uncertainty. Uh, and, and as the conversation can go today, uh, it can go, well, we're not sure about this, so uh, we're going to continue doing what we're doing until we're sure, right? And, and until we're sure, we have to kind of take a different trajectory. So the uncertainty, you know, we... we tend to ignore that or wait until, right, it's, it's before our eyes, before doing anything. Did these uh, pre-modern societies that you all have studied have a similar or kind of a different way to approach uncertainty, right? I mean, they lived with uncertainty in natural, in natural patterns and rainfall and all sorts of uncertainties that they dealt with very directly. Maybe we'll start with you, Annabelle. Yeah, I guess I, I would think that uncertainty was wh where the ideology and their cosmology would play a role and in the Maya case a lot of it does revolve around natural forces like sky and the underworld and uh, trees and, and maize is another one so I think that the, their pantheon of gods would be related to all these natural phenomenon and indeed just like uh, everyone else has been saying that they blame something they'll blame the authorities who will be divine in some way if there is un uncertainties that have gone to greater extent. But I think farmers overall uh, are really quite prepared for uncertainties. That's their life. Mm, yeah. Uh, Joe? Yeah, of course, a big difference is that the ancients, certainly Egyptians, uh, divinized nature and natural forces. They didn't fully understand them. They were in the world of the divine, um, which is a line that um, humans didn't, didn't cross, of course. Um, so I think they had a... Uh, so that, that, that's one just kind of uh, religious uh, barrier. When in doubt, kind of pull back I, I, as I opposed think, to... Yeah, I think so. I think generally that, that was kind of a, a barrier, that there was a divine world and divine forces not fully understood. Egypt's great because their, divine for, their natural forces were in places they didn't, they didn't understand uh, what, what was happening, where things were coming from. So it was very much a remote thing not very well understood. It was in the world of the divine and, and, and treated as such. There were festivals for the annual flood of the river was welcomed and there was a huge festival for it, mm -hmm. just to give an example. So um, yeah, that's the, the ancient component of that is uh, that they, I think they knew the limits uh, because there was such, so much unknown um, territory um, that it was divinized, let's say. Um, we're different these days uh, with these things. I so think. it's more of this <laughs> precautionary principle, is it, that is kind of when in doubt to, to not take the risk? Uh, yes. Is, is that what both of you are saying? Mm -hmm. Minimizing risk. Minimize the risk, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Melissa? Yeah, so I want to make two, two 
contrasting points. So on the one hand, I think one of the interesting things about the Greek traditional attitude to religion um, is that they're very aware that the gods can be actually a source of sort of radical difficulty. You know, the gods can mm -hmm. get you into the Trojan War, for example, and mm -hmm. then you don't know, they don't know how to get you out of it, and you don't know how to get out of it. So it's, <laughs> it's not this idea yeah. of the gods are sort of controlling everything for the good. Plato wanted them yeah. to reform their concept of God to be more rationalized, but actually the, the, the standard Greek way, so in a way the gods are partly explaining everything, but also partly making everything even more difficult to understand mm. in a way. Mm. But then I think yeah. what that means is that if, if somebody, they were all, I think many ancient societies, they really value knowledge, you know, to the extent that you can develop, whether it's forms of thinking that you can control the gods or yeah. help to understand them, or whether it's you know, proto the development of sciences, the development of mathematics, they would be hungry for those forms of knowledge. Even if there mm -hmm. are forms of uncertainty still built into them, mm -hmm. they would think, oh my goodness, thank you. You've given us this new form of knowledge. You know, yep. Let's put it to work and use it to keep ourselves safe and to minimize risk. So you know, again, the idea that, that they would say, well, okay, we have this new climate science, but there are still uncertainties, so we shouldn't use it or we shouldn't rely on it. That mm -hmm. would seem crazy to them. They would think, thank you, climate science. Yeah. Let's try to protect <laughs> our earth and you know, not, not run those risks. So it is, it is that right, sort of Right, they're kind of better informed. They have a, well, they yeah. have a value for knowledge because it's, it's rarer. It's in less supply. It's, you know, they have significant forms of knowledge, yeah, but not nearly idea. as much as what we have now in some ways. Mm. Although, as Annabelle says, they also had forms of knowledge that we've lost, you know, in, 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 or, or are in danger of losing. Um, so why aren't we yeah. thinking that science yeah. is, uh, is a rare commodity and right. is really one of the things we need to value? I like that. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, you know, as we were preparing, I want to throw out a, a, a question that, that Melissa suggested we talk about, and that is, uh, as we're thinking about these uh, lessons from the ancients, you know, to what degree are they relevant, and to what degree are they less relevant to today? Uh, maybe I'll put sure. your own question to you first. <laughs> sure. Well, I think there's, you know, I think there's sort of two different ways of looking at it. Again, so on the one hand, as I was saying earlier, I think, in many ways, we're facing the same situation. Like them, we have to live within the carrying capacity of the earth. It's just that we've found a way that it seemed like we could wrap, you know, radically increase that carrying capacity by burning fossil fuels and in other ways. And now we realize even that new power also has these limits. And so just like them, we have to learn to live within those limits. But mm -hmm. we, because we changed the limits and we brought ourselves some ecological headroom, and now we're starting to bump, bump up against those limits again. But then on the other side of it, going back to something you said in the introduction, I think the other side that it shows us is you know, no other civilization in human history has had the chance to, to alter the uh, geochemistry so profoundly that it's, going, it's leaving traces in the kind of geological signature of the Earth. So there's a way in which, in some ways, our situation really is unprecedented. And I think actually seeing the history is also important to help us understand that. Like how, so it's both very, it's both in one way very similar and in another mm -hmm. way it's radically different. And, and when you mm -hmm. think about a, uh, is there a dividing, a dividing line that is, you know, when things really started to change, do you think about the industrial age, you think about the enlightenment, I'm asking you to oversimplify, but is there a time when you think the, the, the framework really started to change? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because the debates over the Anthropocene in, among geologists who are the people who are 
you know, deciding whether to make it uh, an actual geological era. And there are huge debates about that. Should it be 1945? Should it be the mid-19th century? Should it be the, the invention of the um, steam engine in the 18th century, you know, kind of, or back into the 18th century with the cotton gin? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, sorry, I'm getting my timeline a little muddled up there, but anyway. Um, but people putting, and some people are putting it much further back, so it's actually quite interesting that it's, you know, there are, you can make a case for each of these different kinds of dates. Mm. I mean, in terms of what I was just saying, I do think that the kind of fossil fuel revolution, um, which is from the late 19th century, is, I think, a very significant um, date in, in that way. Um, mm. So I would probably go with that one. Um, yeah. Uh, mm. When was Drake's oil well? Is that, yeah, is that it uh, 1876 okay. or right around, around, around then, then in Western yeah. Pennsylvania? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Jill, let me uh, put it to you. You know, to what extent are these uh, historic lessons relevant and irrelevant to today? I mean, I think the general lesson uh, for the of the ancients for us um, is their humanity. Uh, put simply, um, that you know, to the extent that our technology is taking us away from nature and and natural systems. Um, that might make us, in fact, uh, more, uh, more fragile, um, possibly less human. I think we have to make a, a choice of who we want to be as, as a species, and I think we're confronting that now. So one of the lessons for the ancient, ancient world bro broadly is that um, they, they are living within nature and that, that there's something essential about our humanity that is still there that I think we have to keep in mind. Um, and as... Uh, Alyssa was saying also, given paleoclimatology and all the sciences that are remarkable these days, which are changing how we understand ancient history, let alone modern um, warming, um, we should know better um, because of our scientific advances, which is one of the most impressive things um, humans um, have done ever since the Alexandrian Library um, mm -hmm. in my period, of course, but even further back. This is something that's essentially human about the species that's remarkable. Um, and we should actually listen to ourselves um, with all this, all the knowledge that we have. We could put it to really good use. Mm. And, and, and any lessons you, you think are, are as, as Melissa suggests, are there some that are more irrelevant to today? Well, again, the, the technology of the ancient world, uh, the population of the ancient mm -hmm. world is, is, uh, is so radically different. And I think that's a, it's a lesson for us um, that the ancient world is remarkably different um, from, from how we live in some ways. The same species. Um, the changes, though, even the last hundred years, are, the changes are, are spectacular. Um, so, uh, given that, uh, there's a lot of things um, that we shouldn't worry about uh, from the ancient world, I think, because we're living hmm. in a radically different um, world, different planet in, in some ways. So, there's that tension between positive and negative examples, I think. And, um, mm. But it shows, it shows how different uh, we are these days mm -hmm. from... Mm from hmm. Plato's day or yeah. Ptolemy's or yeah. um, uh, oh, Maya. Yeah. yeah, and to Annabelle, right? Uh, well, to what you know, extent are, are we different or the same? Well, of course we are all human, but I wanted to mention, you were saying there were how many? Uh, uh, five million in some time. Oh, 45 million humans in the year 3000 BC. Yeah, and yeah. now there's in the 90. World. No, I, I was talking in, in, uh, in uh, Egypt. Oh, five million in Five Egypt. million and 90 million. The uh, yeah. tropics worldwide yeah, yeah. are underpopulated now, and they're the main target. Mm -hmm. The growth, the population growth in the, in the world today will be most dramatic in the tropics. And mm -hmm. uh, so if we do not take a, a heed to how the tropical societies lived, we will 
really put our whole mm. world in danger. Mm. Because without, you know, I mean, people talk about the lungs and the whatever, you know, but it's not just uh, biodiversity and just trees. It's uh, erosion, soil, yeah. water. Some of the biggest water supplies is the Amazon. I mean, we are, I mean, I feel that I can't think of a negative for understanding what's, what happened in the tropics and what the ancient people were doing in the tropics and what that tells us today. I think we have yeah. to know, and if we don't, we're, we're on the track of mm. destruction. Yeah. Speaking of connectivity, if I could, one, one of the lessons for the Roman Empire, of course, it was uh, an age of some kind of global connectivity um, that connected new parts of the world, uh, Central Africa, Central Asia, I'm into the Mediterranean world, and of course, um, that resulted uh, in um, the spread of plague, uh, which we can see hitting the Roman Empire a couple of times quite dramatically um, and really affected um, the, the urbanized uh, Roman Empire um, in drastic ways. Um, and that kind of global connectivity, if, if we want to call it that, is a lesson for us today in minor um, form compared to what we're looking at today, potentially. And Melissa, you wanted yeah, one more thing. I just wanted thing. to clarify. So I was, of course, in some way, people had been exploiting fossil fuels in some form, you know, coal, for example, in a way, um, mm. you know, so there are different sort of levels of this, but I was talking especially about the, um, the oil, um, the petroleum and sort of um, hydrocarbon. Oh, the petroleum age, yeah. yeah. The petroleum yeah. age, exactly, as we were talking about that. Okay. Yeah. Let, let me kind of st step back a little bit and, and um, ask you about how, what we can learn from the ancients about this how they thought about the environment and sustainability, right? Today, we often frame it in terms of, of future generations or we think of certain species and, and biodiversity. And often, uh, the, the conversation is kind of framed that way, which, uh, you know, is a little, can be a little indirect from everyday life. Uh, what, how similarly or differently did, uh, did the pre-modern uh, civilizations think about this, this question? Did they frame it the same way? Yeah, I, so um, we were talking about this earlier, and I, think, I don't think they would have necessarily thought about sustainability. They weren't thinking about all those different dimensions of it, but they were thinking about what does it take to have a society which can be stable and resilient? you know, and a society which is in a natural order, but also in where its human relations can be stable and resilient. And I think that's a huge goal for them. Now, of course, there are forms of stability that itself that can be damaging. That's why I was saying earlier, you don't necessarily want to preserve something, make it sustainable if it's bad, so you can have exploitative and domination, dominating pre-modern societies, you know, which were also trying to stabilize mm -hmm, themselves. Mm -hmm. But I think that this combination of thinking, well, how do we sustain the social order within, a na within natural limits that they kind of just took for, they, they, they felt them, and so they, they knew that in some way they had to stay within them, or if they didn't, they, they found out soon enough. Um, but, but at the same time, I think as, as societies began to reflect, they started to think, well, what would it, you know, what would a good social order look like? And I think too often our discussions of sustainability, we think it's a, it's a topic just for the scientists. Hmm. And we forget that it's really a topic for thinking about the nature of our society. And it, it sort of mm -hmm. goes to the heart of what our society is about. Whereas you were saying it's often framed as what we have to, to not have. Yeah. As opposed to what a good society might, might look like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Joe. I would also stress uh, stability. Um, kings are interested in political stability in creating a dynasty that's going to last, in theory, into infinity. And they're interested in taxing agriculture in a, in a sustainable way, year by year. 
um, farmers, the vast bulk of populations in places like Egypt were thinking about um, their households um, and their families and living um, year by year, in a sense, in a world where food storage maybe lasted um, a couple of years. So that was the limit of what you could risk, is a couple of years, um, you, could, you could survive a couple of bad years maybe, and that is it. And then you're, then you're, you can't press a button to order food on Amazon or, or something. That is yeah. basically, mm -hmm. um, uh, you're, you're out. You gotta rely on your friends and neighbors or really good spirited mm -hmm. local governors. In this right, country. I mean, you don't just, don't, so. you don't have that life margin. No. That we, th we may think we have today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. They were very much, I think all our societies were very much aware of that's, uh, that's the world. And that's the vast bulk of the population living like that. Yeah. yeah. Annabelle? Yeah, I still think the, the, the concept of resilience and, and prolonging resilience, not taking by, you know, serious risks, obviously risks will be taken. Farmers will plant in a high area and a low area to hedge a bet whether it's going to be a lot of rain or a little rain. The mm. lot of rain, then the lowland area is going to be poor mm. and the highland area will be better. But apart from that, that's an an, you know, those are the annual cycle connections mm -hmm. and those risks are going to be for the better of everyone rather than you know, looking at, I guess, the, the have or have not. It was, they want everyone to have because that will make it mm. better for, every, for them. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, for now, we're going to move on to the Q&A part of this. Hello, my name is Ana Isabel Mercado, and uh, this question is specifically, I'm thinking specifically of uh, the Tairona civilization of Colombia, speaking a little bit of the tropics, who um, believe they are born with a moral responsibility to protect the earth, as the elder brothers that they call themselves. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us why you think this ancient indigenous knowledge has been ignored for so long and is never taught in academia or in the mainstream culture. It's basically non-existent. Is it part of our academic discourse? Yes, well, no? The, uh, 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 I, I started my life looking for the Americas because I grew up in the United States, knew a lot about Egypt and Mesopotamia and Rome and all that, didn't know what was it to be American. And um, I, I, I strongly think that people do not understand the Americas and my work in the Maya area was looking for the Americas. And in fact, uh, I mean, I uh, started rather clinically and now I'm very emotionally involved with it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think academia is struggling, you know, has been struggling in recent decades to try to respect and recover some, some aspects of that knowledge, but I think that you're right that there's still a long way to go in terms of, you know, giving it full respect and, and full understanding. Um, uh, well, in, in, in some case, I mean, it depends. I think there are different reasons. So, I mean, I know that... Um, Annabelle was saying that in the case of um, the, the Maya, who, who she studies, there are fewer kinds of written documents that have survived from the period that she's studying. So that just creates a certain kind of barrier. You know, so in different contexts, there are different kinds of reasons. I think that oral knowledge, I mean, in a way, Plato, again, is right at this moment, actually, in Greece, where there's the transition from a, a mainly oral society to a mainly writing-based society. And there's tremendous tension around that, even at that time 
time, people are aware of what's being lost and what's being gained, and you know, there's a kind of and but but as literacy, you know, kind of won out overall, mm. forms of of um, oral practice and transmission have been less valued. You know, so I don't think that's the whole story. That's you know, that, uh, in any way, um, and of course, there are just kind of sheer power and um, power and domination, you know, sort of inequalities um, that, that have marginalized um, uh, many indigenous groups and have meant that their, that their knowledges haven't been as much respected. Next question. I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just really crooked. We need to do, we need to do better. I, I would note uh, that uh, New Zealand, a major river in New Zealand, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, was declared to have a legal personality, which I think is the first time in modern history. So mm. this river, which is deeply polluted, by the way, can actually bring lawsuits in its own name, which is a really interesting concept. It's obviously a very ancient concept huh. um, in a lot of places, and that is, that is coming, this, mm. this kind of thing, to fight. Uh, that they have legal standing. It has, it, the, river, the river has a legal personality now. My name is Nancy Perlman. I want to thank you very much for your uh, interpretation and discussion of the need to look at ancient past for sustainability because today we are not sustainable on this planet and we are not recognizing science as we should and I found that interesting. But your focus obviously is mostly Western civilization and the Americas. Can we learn anything from Africa and Asia? Uh, just we don't have everybody here. <laughs> I mean, every, I mean, all. I mean, the the, the fact is, is uh, uh, I mean, my interest in the Americas is really non-traditional. At least in Asia, there's a lot of traditions that have persisted and are written. Sanskrit, for example, but uh, and Chinese. So you, the, the, you were talking about Ethiopia, Sudan, and yeah. the, the yeah. Sudan-Egypt yeah. contrast earlier was yeah. interesting. There's a lot going on with Africa that, that connects to Egypt, of course, including these great civilizations, these great cultures, I should say, um, in the Sahara, um, during the Green Sahara period, and the, then the drying out of the Sahara and population movements, which was a driver of Egyptian civilization very early on. That is relatively new um, sorts of information that we're integrating um, into the story. Um, of that part of um, Africa, which is really interesting. I think there's a lot of lessons. You'll hear about them um, soon. Yeah. I mean, Plato was actually writes a lot about Egypt um, and is very aware and thinks of Egypt as a much older, much more stable civilization um, and is aware that they have you know, different medical practices, different political practices, different sort of um, practices of irrigation and so on. And by contrast, um, he thinks that, you know, because many Greek city-states get wiped out, they lose their histories, they, it's a sort of much more mm. conflict-ridden and um, precarious sort of form mm. of political existence. And so it's actually very striking that he, you know, looks to Egypt, not always uncritically, but actually, you know, was deeply aware of, of the sort of um, different valence of political life and, and, and um, longevity of Egyptian civilization compared to Greek in his time. I guess the, the, both of these questions, you know, maybe are also asking: Is the scholarship starting to change uh, and, and reflect, uh, you know, this, this, uh, these broader lessons from from broader history? Do you, do you think it's starting to change? Yeah, I mean, I think the climate climate science in general, which is stuff I'm working deeply on myself and integrating into history, is changing the game. One way it changes the game is we're no longer we're less and less anyway writing national histories of Greece or of Egypt or of Italy or um, it's more regional and interregional because these, mm. these are deeply connected. So there's no, there aren't national boundaries the way we think. And that's sort of how histories have been written in the Mediterranean world. 
Um, now we're writing these much bigger um, stories about cross-cultural interaction, about how climate change is affecting um, large parts of the world at the same time. Um, for example, famines in Egypt, famines in China in the same years. That's the Indian Ocean monsoon failure, which we can now date pretty carefully. So this is going to change how hmm. we understand uh, human history and connectivity and, um, and how civilizations, what they're about. Actually. But in the meantime, the, the people who know so much about the landscapes that we don't know about are going to be mm. uh, moving on their, their uh, oral knowledge, the kind of skills and practices. If we aren't attentive to that, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I, I really feel that we are almost too late. Yeah, so Scott, you're actually our, our person who knows the most about China on this panel. You should say something about Well, uh, you know, we, we talked about yeah. kind of this uh, yeah. divine relationship or relationship to, to the kings and the emperors, and certainly uh, in, in my own family history is this town that kind of flooded. Uh, you know, that's how so many uh, people in China over this broad sweep of time, kind of measured time, was, was flooding, and there was a sense that when you had that... Uh, a great uncertainty or, or some, uh, some disaster did happen, there was a sense that, that the emperor had lost his legitimacy. So it was the same kind of relationship to their, you know, th this kind of, uh, this close, right, to something happening, mm, yes. air, having a margin of mm. error, uh, this, this precautionary principle mm. to try. And then when you exceeded that, there was kind of, uh, in some cases, quick accountability in a political way. Mm. Hi, um, my name is Crystal Sloan. Uh, I perceive that a lot of the um, ecological and economic um, unfoldment has seemed to be motivated by agenda. And the question that I have today is that can there be ethically or politically uh, structure from the ancient societies that could be applied to something like bio-regional decentralization? A lot of things that we have seem to come through one centralized system. Um, with that being said, as much as we have Amazon, if there was issues or complications to be had, we don't really have a lot of time to figure it out because of the sustainability of our local communities. So with that being said, politically or ethically, um, can we attempt to create a bioregional decentralization? That's a really interesting question. And I think we are seeing a lot of very positive actions that are being taken by cities and regions, um, certainly on the climate issue. Um, you know, there's tremendous energy around, I mean, I don't have to tell you this in California, you know, but there's tremendous energy around, you know, sort of cities and states and regions take, taking a stand and, and banding together. Um, and, you know, and, and, and certainly I think sort of, you know, um, local sort of self-sufficiency and resilience is an important value in many ways. There's actually interesting debates, I think, among ecologists um, and scientists about you know, can we really feed people at the scale of the population that we now have with a locavore kind of food system? And I think that is a real challenge. And I think to me, probably the answer is going to have to be some kind of hybrid where you try to bring in more local principles, some more local self-sufficiency, and you build more slack and therefore more resilience into the system. But I think sort of a, a purely local system is probably, you know, speaking as a non-expert on these questions, but is not going to probably be sufficient to the scale. So we need to have some kind of synthesis that will, you know, try to combine the best of both. Mm -hmm. Hi, um, Ifat Pellet. Um, to bring the other side of decentralization, um, seems like a, a theme that was um, going through the conversation was about um, collectivism. 
And I am really curious about your input or your thoughts in regards to what do you think needs to happen in order for us to start thinking more collectively in order to reverse or to stop um, and move away from the edge that we're standing on. Really, really good political yeah. leadership <laughs> would, would be, would be uh, handy, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, I think Certainly it's a at the city. I think it's a political, it seems to me a political um, issue, um, but maybe just more, more of us getting out there and talking about um, what that would look like, what that means. Um, you know, as I said earlier, I think uh, the kind of climate changes we're going to experience, uh, perhaps we can uh, respond to them pretty well, but it might change how we live. It might change many things that we're going to have to either accept or, or not. Um, so we need to have those conversations um, in a lot of places. Um, but it's a structurally difficult problem, it seems to me, given the current how we are organized in the society. So we have a lot of work to do ground up and hopefully uh, with uh, voting in really good political leaders, that, that would be nice. Yeah, I mean, Without I, getting too political. Yeah, I mean, I so I, 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 I think that there's a real um, both and strategy between the sort of individual ethics and the political outcome. So mm. sometimes I tend, because when I go back to the Greeks, I think they do put a lot of emphasis on individual virtue and sort of good habits and practices. And sometimes people say to me, well, that's just naive. What we really need is political change. But what I think is, well, how are you going to bring about that political change? You have to have individuals who work to bring about that political change. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to get the whole society to change before you can bring about the political change, but you have to get a critical mass of people who are willing to push for that. And again, and, and so I think that, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a, there's a potential of a symbiotic relationship between individuals changing their own practices, their own beliefs, and then grouping together, you know, to argue for political change. And then you can get mixed motives where you get some people who are the sort of true believers who are out in front on the change of norms, and then you get other people who follow on the bandwagon. And there's a pretty well understood dynamics of social norm change that happens like that, you know? And so it's complex, and every, but everybody can play a role, and it might be a different kind of role. Um, so, um, I mean, there was, I, I was living in England for many years, and there was a story where um, when Tony Blair was elected prime minister, you know, he, he was having a meeting with a group of environmentalists, and they said, and he said to them, you know, so, you know, um, you know, you know I want to really do things, you know, what can we do? And they said, well, you know, you can make a law about light bulbs, more energy efficient light bulbs. And he said, oh, I can't do that. You know, you have to force me to do that. Like you have to bring it about that I have to pass that law, you know, have to propose that law and, and get it passed. And that was, I thought, a very telling kind of moment where even somebody at seemingly the zenith of his political power still needed the mobilization of a group of citizens who were going to provide the political cover and mm -hmm. the political impetus, you know, to drive that change. Jerome Hellman. Um, I have a question about sustainability in our present uh, world. Um, biodiversity seems to be diminishing. Uh, the genetic engineering of our grains and of many of our fruits and vegetables has led to um, a vulnerability. Uh, look at the bananas that are yeah. uh, endangered because of disease. Yeah. Um, we have other uh, products too, but I remember when the um, number of apples available uh, were so diverse. There, you know, like in yeah. New York State, there might be yeah. 
uh, 30 or 40 or 50 varieties. Now we're, we face five, six, seven varieties. Yeah. And what happens uh, when we accept this uh, instead of biodiversity? Yeah. Where are we headed, yeah. the vulnerability? I, I mean, totally agree with you. Monocropping is the tendency of empires. Um, it was true in the ancient, in the ancient empires um, as well, and there's some, there's some lessons there we could get into at the reception. Um, yeah, so uh, we're, it's, it's dangerous in a world that's growing a handful of uh, grain, grain crops. China looks very particularly vulnerable, actually. Um, and under conditions of warming, um, this, is a serious, this is a serious problem that we need to address. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. yeah, and some of these grains, like maize, are, are not made for traditional societies to manage. So they're, they're, they have to have water at every specific moment, and if they don't tassel or do whatever at these moments, they will not produce. And then also their storageability is different. But um, where native or things that they call indigenous maize will be waiting for the rain, for example, and mm -hmm. will go with the flow, literally. Uh, and and you, 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 I think I, I remember a student had done a, some work on all these grains of uh, Hopi and and Rio Grande um, Indians, Native Americans, and and all kinds of different DNA. And she approached Pioneer. It wasn't Monsanto, but Pioneer. And they said, Oh no, we could do that. That's not a problem. Did not even appreciating how each grain was very attuned to mm -hmm. that local environment. That's not something we can can do now. Can I just, uh, I know we're gonna wrap up momentarily to ask each of you uh, if, we've, we've talked about a broad sweep of ideas and a broad sweep of time, if you have it, one takeaway to suggest that all of us bring home today, and that before we wrap up. Yeah, so one interesting thing is that, you know, the ancients were overly ready often to, a, to think that uh, bad things that happened were due to human agency. You know, so if they if there was a drought, they would think it's because the king is a bad king, or because you know we we sinned and violated and violated a, a religious law or something like that. And I think it's really striking. And, and over, arguably, they overinterpreted the role of human agency. But I think it's really interesting how we now are so tempted to underinterpret it. You know, to not want to think that humans yeah. are responsible or having an impact. Uh, yeah. yeah, or having an impact. So I think that, to me, that's a that's an important um, contrast to take away. Yep. What I'm most excited about... Very quickly, about, yeah, because I know we're going to finish up. Yeah, Joe. Sorry, uh, just really quickly is uh, paleoclimatology, climate <laughs> sciences generally, because it actually is changing in specific ways how we do ancient history. That's cool. Um, but more importantly, what we learn with climate science is there's a great deal of uncertainty um, still with climate models, of course, but, but uncertainty because the climate system of the Earth is really complicated and not perfectly well understood yet. And I think the lesson there is, with all the great science that's going on, we need to be cautious because there's stuff we just don't know. And it's better to err on the side of um, being gentle on the earth rather than saying we can uh, power through it, no problem, until we get some horrible signal that we're in trouble, hmm. which is probably a time when it's too late anyway. Great. So, and, and final takeaway, Mill. Keep in touch with nature. Know, know the cycles, the different time periods every month, what is different, what blooms, what doesn't what animals are around, what animals aren't. If you're in touch mm. with nature, you're gonna actually be able to grow your own food. You're gonna be able to enjoy more biodiversity. You're gonna be sharing that with your neighbors and taking care of your landscape. Great, Great. well, on that last <laughs> note. <laughs> before we do close, I'd like to thank
I'd like to thank our co-presenter tonight, the Getty Villa. We're so grateful to have them hosting us Zocalo here at the Getty Villa. Also, if you didn't have a chance to ask your question, I know there were a few more of you out there. All of our panelists will be at the post-event reception in the inner peristyle. Just take a left out of the auditorium toward the amphitheater. We'll have ushers pointing you in the right direction. So please stick around and join us. Thank you, all of you, for joining us. And finally, a big round of applause for our fantastic panelists this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.